Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. A Hamilton man wants action on cancer care. The election interference cloud hangs over Ottawa. We have some tax tips that you can use. Ukraine has its sights set on Crimea. Have you heard about Terramation? And the NHL playoffs are ready for liftoff. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Hey, there's a Hamilton man on Parliament Hill calling for government action to clear the massive cancer care backlog that is currently plaguing our healthcare system. His name is Max Silverman. He's a volunteer with the Canadian Cancer Society and a McMaster University student who was diagnosed with stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma. Max joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Max, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here back in my actual hometown of Ottawa. You know, I just I flew in from Toronto yesterday and I'm Really looking forward to, to being able to do some advocacy for something that I think is, is really important. What do you hope to achieve in the nation's capital? Well, you know, you know, Canadian Cancer Society is an incredible organization, and I've been working with them for a couple of years since I unfortunately had this diagnosis back in 2020. They've really supported me throughout my cancer journey, and I, I hope to sort of give back and, and help Canadians uh, that are, are suffering from and, and beyond cancer, of which there's about 1.5 million is, is the quote that we we tend to, to say. Um, so there's there's quite a bit. And you mentioned the backlog, and that's absolutely one of it. But, you know, quite a quite a few other issues across the whole sort of cancer journey we're hoping to tackle, including, you know, EI sickness benefits, um, improving palliative care sort of near the end of the journey, improving health system funding, as, as well as, you know, many, many other aspects of the cancer journey. So let's let's start with the backlog. What's it like right now? Um, you know, I, I don't, I can't say that I have the the clearest picture in terms of exactly what's going on from that perspective. Um, you know, I, I am a medical student at McMaster, so I do have a bit of firsthand experience with the healthcare system, but, you know, just sort of beginning, beginning my career. So I think if you ask me in a couple of years, I might have a, a bit clearer of an answer for you, but, but, you know, that might be a, a better question for someone a bit more well-versed. So what about when it comes to, you mentioned EI, palliative care, just overall health system funding, where are some of the improvements that we can, we can clearly make some headway in? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you know, I think quite a few areas, uh, some of those and many others that I think we're are always, you know, can stand to benefit from. When you receive a diagnosis of cancer, you know, this is something that's going to completely shake up everything in your life, everything in the life of, of those around you and your caregivers. And to have to worry about something like going into work and, and being able to make ends meet, it, it's just a, another added stress that that makes the, the situation just incredibly more difficult. So I just know that there's, you know, a, a bigger role that the Canadian government can play on both federal, provincial and municipal levels to support the many 1.5 million Canadians living with and beyond cancer. So, you know, that that's one of them, but uh, there's, you know, a, a whole spectrum. And that's why I'm really excited to be, you know, joining my voice to share my experience with these 25 other volunteers from across Canada to help share the experiences that we've had to go through so that hopefully we can influence policymakers so that they can better understand what it's like to, you know, receive a diagnosis of cancer in Canada and what that journey looks like. Because, it really is so different from everyone, and there are so many steps along that journey that can be helped along and made easier um, for for cancer survivors and, and their families, and and those those fighting cancer now. 
We're speaking with Max Silverman on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Max is a McMaster medical student who was diagnosed in 2020 with stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. What's your journey been like? Yeah, sure. I mean, it was it was quite the whirlwind at the beginning there. I was studying life sciences at Queens uh, in Kingston. Um, and I was in my third year and it was, you know, many months sort of in that first semester. I'm not feeling so well. I'm having this terrible night sweats and all these symptoms. And being a young 20-year-old, 20-year-old guy with, with these kind of symptoms and you know, you tend to think that you're invincible. And the last thing on your mind is that it could be cancer. So I really pushed it off and thought it could be anything but and and really was just worrying about all the other myriad responsibilities in my life until it really got to a, a terrible point. And I ended up having real difficulty breathing and the student wellness services on campus actually ended up getting an x-ray and finding this large tumor in my chest that was was making it hard for me to breathe. Um, so really scary, ended up being in the ICU for a week. But fortunately, I can say that my friends and family, you know, rally behind me in an incredible way. And the healthcare workers did, you know, sprung into action, went through six months of chemotherapy. And, you know, I'm now happy to say that I'm two and a half years cancer free. And since going through this, you know, I've now started medical school. I'm in my second year, I've really tried to utilize that unique perspective of having a bit of an in from the patient side, as well as from the healthcare side, uh, to try to share that perspective in terms of advocacy and improving cancer care for others that are going to go through something a little bit similar. That is great news. Happy to hear that you're in a much better place today as opposed to January of 2020. That must have been a scary time. Let's talk about the Daffodil campaign, because this is a big part of um, raising awareness, raising money to help cancer um, uh, research. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. So the Day on the Hill, which is this event, the first time we're running it, um, you know, in the, over these next two days, it coincides with the Canadian Cancer Society's annual Daffodil campaign, which is going on throughout the month of April. And essentially, each spring, the Canadian Cancer Society raises funds to help people with cancer live longer and more full lives by enabling advocacy efforts, such as what we're doing in Ottawa over the next couple of days, as well as through advancement of life-saving research and also the delivery of support programs for, you know, uh, Canadians living with cancer and their caregivers. So I'm, you know, extremely fortunate that the, the diagnosis that I had, Hodgkin's lymphoma, about, you know, 20, 30 years ago would have had a much worse prognosis if it weren't for incredible advancements in cancer research that enabled, you know, healthcare workers to essentially find a cure through chemotherapy. And I think a large part of that is due to some of the efforts that organizations like the Canadian Cancer Society does. So I'd really, you know, encourage Hamiltonians and, and everyone else to, to get involved with this campaign and, and try to support it because it can really do amazing things. That is an amazing story. You can get more information. You can help support the cause online at cancer.ca. Max, thank you very much for joining us today and good luck on Parliament Hill. Thanks so much, Rick. Max Silverman is a volunteer with the Canadian Cancer Society. And as you heard, a McMaster medical student who was diagnosed with stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma in uh, January of 2020. And uh, as of today, cancer free, which is absolutely phenomenal. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. With the uh, election interference cloud hanging over Parliament Hill, and it is a, a large dark cloud. MPs are back in the House of Commons, and they returned three days after the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff finally offered her testimony on election interference. You're the top official in the Prime Minister's office. Canadians deserve to know 
when he first learned about it. I would take a step back and just say this has been an ongoing conversation over many months and years. So that is Katie Telford called before a parliamentary committee on Friday to testify as allegations intensified about the federal government's knowledge of foreign interference attempts. And she told MPs that she is often with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau when he's briefed on national security issues, but she is prohibited to talk about what they talk about in public. Will Stewart is a senior vice president, national lead, public affairs and advocacy at Hill and Knowlton, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Will, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm good. Uh, Telford didn't say much, which, you know, no one should be surprised about. Uh, After all the calls to have her testify, are we any further ahead today than we were, say, a week ago? I think we are, but but not in a significant way. And as you say, I think that's exactly what people expected. I mean, Katie Telford has done this uh, many times before. Uh, You know, our our company does this work as well. We'll spend a lot of time doing training and mock rehearsals and simulations on committee hearings so that it is a non-event. That's exactly the the approach. But she did let slip a couple of interesting pieces of information that I think we can keep in our back pocket for the future. One, that the the Prime Minister reads everything that is sent to him from top to bottom, from reports to briefs to executive summaries. So it would be very difficult for the Prime Minister in the future to say that he wasn't aware of a particular issue. And number two, uh, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff also said she tells the Prime Minister absolutely everything and keeps nothing back from him. Well, again, that means everything that Katie Telford knows than Justin Trudeau knows. So I think we have a little bit of information going forward, but no, certainly no indication about uh, how much they knew what happened and what's going on with this alleged uh, Chinese interference in our election system. Do you think that anything she said cemented in the mind of Special Rapporteur David Johnston that we need a public inquiry? Well, I actually hope not, actually. I hope David Johnson's actually looking at facts. I hope he's looking at reports. I hope he has the security clearance necessary and needed to be able to review these documents. I mean, look, committee hearings at the end of the day, especially ones between political actors, and I mean that whenever ministers or or chiefs of staff to prime ministers are are in the hot seat, they are political theater more than they are inquiry bodies. And I'm really hoping that David Johnson has the ability to do that inquiry to get to the bottom of this much more so than the theater that, frankly, I think we saw last week, and frankly, the theater that the Prime Minister and his office want to distract us with, so we're not looking at the actual facts. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Will Stewart, Senior Vice President, National Lead, Public Affairs and Advocacy at Hill and Knowlton. We're talking about uh, Katie Telford's testimony before a parliamentary committee uh, as allegations intensify about uh, election interference. Uh, the Easter break is over. MPs back in the House of Commons today. Certainly this interference story is going to be a hot topic for weeks, if not months. But the Liberals are going to want to push their budgets and and talk about what they're trying to do for Canadians, right? Yeah, I think so. That's exactly it. I mean, they 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 unveiled the budget. They've they've done a little bit of budget rollout. They've been back to the ridings for their Easter break, and now it's time to get back to the 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 work at hand in in the House of Commons. But but you're right. The same challenges are still there. Canadians are still very much concerned about the issues about affordability. As as you mentioned, there's of course the massive overhang of the Chinese election interference, which is not going anywhere, despite Katie Telfer's testimony. Uh, last week. And then you have some legislative issues. Frankly, the, the government has a very hard time uh, getting a new broadcast act through the House of Commons and the Senate. They're having difficulties with digital acts as well. 
we're seeing lots of of stagnation in the the House of Commons with just an inability to get uh, to get anything done. So we've got the issues that they're dealing with and the legislation that doesn't seem to be able to be dealt with. So, you know, understandably, Canadians are getting kind of frustrated with the, the antics in Ottawa. And and kind of hanging around in the background is a potential strike by public servants. This uh, might throw a wrench into what we're seeing on Parliament Hill and beyond. Well, exactly. And that brings the, the, the issue of affordability right to the government's own footstep. I mean, some of the the union uh, the union demands have been uh, close to 20%, if not right at 20% salary increases, which, you know, directly impacts uh, that affordability. And of course, every, any dollar that the government spends is really you and I spending that money and all of your listeners spending that money. So it drives up costs uh, for everybody at the exact time when inflation is doing that for us uh, in many ways because of government of all stripes and and their spending. Got about uh, 30 seconds. We uh, learned that the Liberal Party of Ontario is going to choose a new leader on December 2nd. And a couple of the names that have been mentioned are uh, Liberal MPs, Yasser Nakvi, Nate Erskine-Smith. And that means potentially if they do enter the race, two more federal by-elections and yet another test of the Trudeau popularity. Yeah, we've got a number of by-elections coming up, uh, of course, uh, provincially here in Ontario as well. There's a number of, of vacant seats now because of the mayor's race uh, in Toronto uh, as well. So, you know, to me, the only the only surprising thing about the Liberal Party and then their announcement over the weekend was how long it was going to take. Uh, you're going to be about, what, two years into the Ford mandate before you even uh, pick a leader. That leader then has to uh, organize the election, raise the money for the election, raise her or his own profile uh, for the election against a, a juggernaut of a conservative government that has a massive majority and and seems to still be doing uh, just fine in the eyes of most of the voters. So it's going to be a difficult slog uh, for that Liberal Party, but uh, they've done it before and I'm sure we'll see them back again. Oh, great points by our guest, Will Stewart. Will, thanks for the time today. Enjoy the day. Thank you. You too. Well, Stewart's from Hill and Knowlton giving us uh, his thoughts on Katie Telford's testimony and some of the hot topics on Parliament Hill. Coming up after the news, if you haven't done your taxes, you will want to pay attention to what our next guest has to say. Coming up here on GMH on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Have you done your taxes? I actually did mine last night. I said, wife, we got to do it. She's like, all right, let's get her done. And then 30, 40 minutes later, party was over. And uh, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's a strenuous situation year in and year out, but it's always, you know, what's going to happen? Is anything, anything changed? Are we going to get a refund? How, is it going to work? Like, what's going to happen? Is the software going to work? Are we going to have to call CRA? There's so, a little bit of a stress and anxiety going into tax filing season, I'm sure for many, many Canadians. And certainly with the cost of living, you're thinking, oh, it'd be nice if I got a refund, wouldn't it? Well, as the uh, 2022 tax return deadline looms, we know that there is a potential, right now still potential, strike by workers at Canada Revenue Agency, which would certainly throw a wrench into anyone's plans if they're uh, going to get a refund. Hey, if you owe, yeah, go on strike. (laughs) Take as long as you want to hammer out your new collective bargaining agreement. That means I won't have to pay. I, I, I would guess that's how it's going to work. Jerry Vitoratos is a national tax specialist at UFL Canada and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Jerry, good morning. How are you? Not bad. How are you? I'm okay. We're a couple of weeks away from the deadline, which I guess is crunch time. 
Yes, as always. Uh, you know, April 30th is the deadline, although this year, because it falls on a weekend, it'll be uh, May 1st. So uh, the, the terrible Monday you were talking about is actually going to be in two weeks, <laughs> really, because that's that's when the deadline's coming, right, for, for, for all of us. Do you have any statistics, even an- anecdotal evidence on uh, whether or not most Canadians wait until the last minute? Uh, actually, most Canadians don't necessarily. Oh. Uh, there, there's a good percentage of Canadians that will wait till the last minute uh, to file the return. But I would say if, if I just looked anecdotally at our stats, our filing stats, meaning when when our customers uh, file the return, especially for our uh, online product, uh, actually, uh, most people have pretty much filed the return. But there is uh, one, we do notice a last push uh, th- that happens right after Easter. It's like, it's almost as if it's like a reminder uh, Easter becomes a reminder, oh, wait, my taxes are due. I really got to file. And then there's always, of course, a, a small subset that, that will file at the last possible minute. Is there any benefit to waiting until almost the end or, or doing so earlier? I would say doing so earlier is always better because remember that that your tax return is basically based on what you did in the previous calendar year. So whatever has been done has been done, uh, essentially. So uh, the earlier, the better. And uh, the, the worst thing you could do is wait last minute because you might have a surprise balance owing uh, that you're not necessarily aware of. Everybody thinks they always have refunds, but you never know uh, with how your tax situation is. Uh, so if you wait the last possible second, well, and you get that nasty surprise of, it, of a balance owing, uh, you know, that, that really throws your, your, your budget and uh, that throws a wrench in your budget. Do most people get refunds? I would say yes. Uh, for the most, most employees will. Uh, people who are self-employed don't get refunds, especially if that's their principal source of income. Because, of course, when you're self-employed, you're not paying a withholding tax at source, right? That's the reason why you're filing your return is to actually determine uh, what you're paying. But when you're an employee, that's what the tax return is about, is that you're paying your, your, your tax in advance. And then uh, when you file your tax return, you're determining whether you pay too much or too little. And for the most part, people who our employees usually have paid too much during the year, so they get a refund. Jerry Vitoratos is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jerry is a national tax specialist at UFile Canada. You can get more information. Hey, file your taxes at ufile.ca. What are some of the common mistakes or omissions that people will make? I would say that the common mistakes is that people who don't archive the receipts properly, uh, especially when it comes to medical expenses and and, and in certain cases donations, uh, because these are you know receipts that the government doesn't have and that you get throughout the year. For example, if you went to your dentist in January, well, you have to archive that receipt uh, in January for the following year. And unfortunately, a lot of people do not do this. You know, they they, they don't archive uh, properly, and that's why what I usually suggest to people is that taxes are are year process. So at the beginning of every tax year, create a folder and stick any document you think uh, is related to your tax return and then just simply sort it afterwards uh, during tax season. If you, if you try to sort, if you try to uh, uh, archive your receipts uh, uh, during tax season, it's too late. Usually you've lost uh, these receipts. Uh, the, other th- the other omissions that people have is, is what I would call the carry forward amounts. So these are amounts that people bank. Uh, so these are credits and deductions that you can bank over the years that, uh, during uh, tax years that you don't need these deductions. And then uh, uh, and then what you could do is you could use those deductions and credits the year that you really need them. Unfortunately, people are not aware that they have them. Uh, these are, for example, tuition credits. These are, for example, uh, RSP uh, contributions they never deducted. And unfortunately, there's a lot of dollars that people miss because they're not even aware that they have these amounts. And back to that archival uh, topic, is it true that you have to keep that stuff for seven years? 
or you should yes. keep it? Yes, absolutely, you do uh, because the, because the government can't go back can't go back seven years in order to uh, reassess your return. So absolutely, you would need to keep them for seven years. But it, it, it's it's it goes both ways. Uh, if, for example, you miss something, you can go back up to ten years and change your tax return and try to get some more money back. Wow. Uh, lastly, we got about ninety seconds. The impending strike by CRA workers. Uh, we could potentially see delays in refunds and a bunch of other things if they're not on the job. It, there is a, there is that potential. Yes, I would say especially for those of you for the for people who are paper filing the returns, I would say they're going to get the short end of the stick if if a strike happens. Now, uh, for those who uh, transmit the returns electronically through NetFile, uh, you, uh, you know a lot of these systems that the CRA has to assess your return, they're automated, so there shouldn't be. It shouldn't be too too bad for those individuals, uh, but but certainly you know we're in, we're in uncharted waters here. We're not sure exactly how it's going to get handled, uh, but I would say file as soon as you can, uh, just just to be safe. Uh, and like I said, a lot of these systems are automated, especially when you're electronically filing your return. So there shouldn't be it shouldn't be too too bad, even if a strike happens. You can file your return using ufile.ca. Jerry, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jerry Vitaratos is a national tax specialist at UFile Canada. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Leaked documents from the Pentagon reveal Ukrainian forces are ready to launch an offensive against Russian invaders this month. And one of the goals is to retake the Crimea region. How realistic is it? Well, we know that Russia has controlled that area since 2014 and this may set up the biggest battle of this already 14-month-old war. Here to talk about it is Elliot Tepper, Professor Emeritus of Political Science with Carleton University. Mr. Tepper, good morning. How are you? Oh, good morning, Rick. The idea of retaking Crimea, uh, Crimea first off, why is that an important piece of land? <laughs> well, it's absolutely crucial. It's uh, part of Ukraine. It was, as you pointed out, seized by Russia in the... It's first invasion. We have to remind ourselves we're now into the second invasion and uh, the attempt to occupy all of Ukraine that failed in uh, 2014. So you, Crimea is, uh, without a map, it's difficult to really point all this out, but it's, it's that little kind of peninsula just at the base of Ukraine. It was definitely part of Ukrainian territory. It has been seized. The Russians have annexed it officially and consider it part of Russian territory, just as they do much of the Donbass, parts of which they don't control. So it is the basis of their Black Sea fleet. It's a very important strategic position, but also it has um, an emotional connection in terms of the historic legacies of the religions and the cultures and the politics going back a very long way. So it's, it is a critical part of the Ukraine puzzle, as pointed out. I find it interesting that Suddenly, there's speculation that that will be the point of the spring offensive, which has long been rumored. There's been no hint of that, of course, in the past. Realistically, can Ukraine take over Crimea with the state its military is in right now? Huh. Well, we are in a wartime situation, Rick, and we know that misinformation and disinformation is a, an incredibly important part of what's going on. All of the talk of a spring offensive by the Ukrainian forces to push the Russian forces out has focused on the Donbass region. It's entirely possible 
that that's been a head fake, that that's been deliberately misleading and that the real target is Ukraine, uh, is Crimea within Ukraine. But uh, Crimea is very difficult to attack. It's been heavily fortified by Russians. They've occupied it. The possibility that there are surprises coming that might indeed lead to some success in attacking Crimea. Uh, there's rumors and reports now of drones, uh, seaborne drones, underwater drones, because these have been used in the past in limited amounts to actually attack Crimea in the, by Ukraine in the past. Uh, remember that the, the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet was sunk by, by Ukraine early on, and now they've attacked by these underwater drones or these seaborne drones, these uh, uncrewed zones. They attacked the follow-up successor to be the uh, flagship. So it's entirely possible that there will be major attempts to seize Crimea, but intuitively one suspects that that would be a very difficult task uh, in terms of succeeding militarily. There are reports, as uh, in what you've been reading as well, that there's really only three access points from uh, into Crimea. If they blow up the Kerch Bridge and shut off the water flow from the Dnipro down into, uh, into Crimea, that's the only source of fresh water there. So you can draw up scenarios, but somehow it's very difficult to suggest they're going to attack the stronghold of Russia in Crimea in the spring spring offensive. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Elliot Tepper, Professor Emeritus of Political Science with Carleton University. We're talking about this uh, upcoming spring offensive by Ukrainian forces against Russia. We also learned in these uh, leaked Pentagon documents that uh, China has agreed to secretly arm Russia with weapons, disguising them as civilian items, which is no surprise, but there's got to be a fallout for China, given that. I mean, let's not forget Vladimir Putin has been charged with war crimes. How do you how do you see this panning out? China is going to great lengths to say, no, we absolutely are not providing military supplies to our good friend, our friend that uh, with whom we have a, a treaty without any borders, without any limits, uh, unlimited going forward. Three days of, of Xi Jinping's moral support uh, given when he traveled to Moscow recently, uh, but the idea that they would provide military support directly and traceable to them uh, would put them in some peril because then they would be caught up in American sanctions. Yet they have a far, far larger international economic presence than does Russia. Uh, their companies are all over the world, as we know, including in Canada. So they will be very cautious about being caught directly providing military support. The possibility of second party or third party transference of support is always there. Suddenly, oh, just making this up, North Korea has a, a sudden bulge in supplies, which they then can uh, pass on, or Iran for that matter, uh, or some other states as well. But uh, China has to tread its position very carefully. Undoubtedly, Rick, they are full partners uh, to Mr. Putin in his war of aggression, his illegal war of aggression. No longer was he declared an international criminal with an arrest warrant, and Xi Jinping went and shook his hand, and they signed a number of agreements. So the possibility that China would more directly intervene is there. I'm not sure how they would react, Rick, if suddenly Crimea did hypothetically fall to the Ukrainian forces and the Russians were humiliated. 
the possibility then exists that um, they would start seeing this as a losing proposition or uh, the possibility that Russia might decide then to use tactical nuclear weapons. All the pressure right now, as you've been seeing in today's press, is for uh, by the EU is going to uh, send a message to Beijing, do not support Russia in its war of aggression and definitely don't support them in terms of any use of nuclear weapons. It's going to be very tenuous times, and uh, we'll see how it all uh, rolls along with this spring offensive, when it begins and, and what it looks like. Uh, Mr. Tepper, appreciate your time as always. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's good to, uh, good to talk to you about these important issues, Rick. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We don't normally like talking about death or dying, but as we know, it's a fact of life. And when someone passes away, your wish could be for a burial or a cremation. Of course, those are the options. But there is a new option that is becoming available, and that's the option of what is known as human composting. Sophie Louie is an anchor at Global News in BC and has covered this story and did a phenomenal job of doing so on the new reality this past Saturday. You can watch that show 7 p.m. on Global on Saturday nights. You can also catch it Sunday nights at 6.30 right here on CHML. We welcome Sophie Louie to Good Morning Hamilton. Sophie, good morning. How are you? Thanks so much for having me, Rick. How did you find out about human composting? Well, in great question, because it's not happening here in Canada. Human composting is not a thing yet in Canada, although through our research, um, we uh, spoke with a number of people in the funeral industry or the death care industry is what we've started calling it. Um, and they say it's inevitable. It'll be coming here. But yeah, human composting sounds rather gruesome, doesn't it? It does. And that leads to my next question. How does it work? So um, human composting works um, the way composting does, I guess. But um, and and as I as I said, it does sound a little gruesome. So the person we spoke with, Micah Truman, who is the CEO of a place called Return Home in Seattle, which is where they do this, he coined a new term called terramation. He likes to say that he's terramating um, bodies. He's terramating humans, basically sending them back to the terra, the earth. So what they do is they take a vessel or a big box, like a, like a coffin, but much bigger. Uh, they put about two feet of uh, organic compostable material, alfalfa, straw, sawdust, and then they lay the body on top of that, and then they cover it with more of the organic material until the vessel is full. They then um, pump in some warm air into that vessel, and then they let the microbes do what microbes do. Uh, they let it sit for about 60 days or so, and at the end of the process, uh, you're left with just soil, about 200 pounds of soil, uh, depending on the size of the person who was in that vessel. And of course, uh, it's all mixed in with those organics um, that were originally there. They then bag up the soil, give it back to the family. The family can do whatever they want with it. They can use it to to plant flowers or vegetables in their garden. They can use it to, um, to plant a tree or they can scatter it like they would with ashes uh, in the loved one's favorite places. Or they can, you know, divide it up into smaller bags and share it with um, the, the deceased person's uh, many friends or loved ones um, elsewhere. So they can do whatever they want with it. But yeah, it's, it's a, a legal in Washington state and five other states, but it's not yet available in Canada. 
We're talking about human composting with Sophie Louie, anchor at uh, Global News in BC here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Is, is this a popular option or many people tapping Micah Truman on the shoulder to say, hey, I, I'd like to sign up for this? Yeah, he only opened within a, the last year or so because it is a, a very new thing. And while it is um, legal in more states than Washington, it really is only underway in the Seattle area of Washington state right now. Uh, but he is seeing a lot more demand for it. Um, we actually spoke with uh, a woman named Claudia Mason, who um, sadly her husband was killed in a hit and run. He was riding his bike when he was uh, hit by a car and, and she um, used the terramation or human composting option for him. And she had read about it a month before her husband was killed. Um, she and her husband had read about it before he was killed. And they had actually discussed that this was what they wanted to do. They wanted to return to the earth, um, more or less. And so there are a lot more people doing it. Uh, I know that um, Micah's return home business is in Seattle, but he's even had a couple of people from Canada who've transported their passed away loved ones to Washington State to use that option as well. Did you find out how much this costs? Um, it was about five, $6,000 U.S., so I'm not sure what the exchange rate is now. So it will be more. It will be more with our exchange rate for sure. But it seems to be a little less than traditional burial. Um, you know, when you're embalmed and then put in a, a fancy coffin, a little bit more than cremation. But one of the advantages, Rick, is it's seen as being um, having less of an environmental impact because uh, with traditional burial, you're embalmed. Um, you don't decompose uh, very quickly. It'll take decades and decades before you're decomposed. And then, you know, the, the land that's needed for cemeteries is enormous. Cremation, a lot of people choose cremation. 70% of Canadians, in fact, choose cremation. And um, I think it's something like 90% in urban centers. But cremation um, can emit as much as 540 pounds of CO2 per body. And that's as much as driving between Toronto and Montreal, or roughly as much. So uh, human composting or terramation uh, is seen as being a greener option, a more sustainable option. Um, and that's just one uh, new um, option in this movement that uh, is known as the green burial movement in Canada. That sounds uh, absolutely fascinating, and I'm sure it'll be in Canada uh, as it is in Washington State uh, very soon. Sophie, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. That is Sophie Louis, anchor from Global News BC. Terramation, absolutely fascinating and how this company has developed this process and uh, who knows how quickly it will be uh, developed here or uh, uh, spread here in Canada. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Battling for the puck in the corner. Five seconds to go. Up it comes to the line. Yeah, we know that one team and one team only will lift Lord Stanley's Cup. And uh, last year was the Colorado Avalanche in a thrilling final against Tampa Bay. What team is going to be that team this year? Brian Murphy is an NHL content producer with the Sporting News and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Brian, welcome back to the show. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. An exciting time with the playoffs starting tonight. Best time of the year. Absolutely. What is your favorite part of the NHL playoffs? 
Oh man, there's so many good parts. I mean, to me, it's got to be the overtime part. Overtime hockey is entertaining and thrilling enough as it is in the regular season. You add in the high stakes of the playoffs, next goal wins, golden goal mentality, and it is absolutely thrilling. Give me any and all overtime playoff hockey, and I will tune in for every single second of that action. That is a great point because it can end at any time. Each and every game is so massive. And I remember a couple of years ago, I think it was the bubble in which Tampa Bay and Columbus round one, they went like four overtimes. Tampa Bay ended up winning and then, you know, they went on to win the whole thing. But yeah, overtime in the playoffs is sensational. I will say the other thing too is, you know, the the sacrifices that these players make with sacrificing their body, putting their 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 physical and their mental mind frame through the grinder for what is a month-long kind of tournament is absolutely astounding to me. Exactly. Yeah. It is one of the things that I always not necessarily look forward to, but I always find intriguing is whenever these series end, finding out just how many injuries all these players are playing with, finding out how many months they've played with a broken finger or, uh, you know, something else that's going on that to the normal person's like, how the heck do you go out and play one game? And these guys <laughs> are going out and grinding it out for multiple games, multiple series, really got to give kudos to them. So I imagine that there are already people going to the playoffs with some injuries but we'll see who is able to overcome that adversity. We have four series starting tonight, four other ones starting tomorrow. Islanders, Carolina, Florida, Boston, Minnesota, Dallas, Los Angeles, Edmonton. Then tomorrow it's the Rangers, Devils, Winnipeg, Vegas, Seattle, Colorado, Tampa Bay, Toronto. Which series in your mind is the most interesting? Well, right off the bat, it, I do think that Maple Leafs Lightning, just because the rematch of last year, is the most intriguing, and I think the one that a lot of people are going to be tuning into. do. But for me, if I had to pick one for kind of the casual fan to watch, Devils-Rangers. This is two very young teams, two of the younger teams in the NHL, where they're on the come up in the Metro Division, a rivalry between them, the Hudson River rivalry. They're two very close rivals in the tri-state area. I think there's going to be bad blood in this series. I think it's going to be exciting, entertaining, skilled hockey. That's the series that, if I'm going to point out for one in the first round for people to tune in, Devils-Rangers, absolutely. You nailed the two on the head for me. Of course, being a Leafs fan, obviously, Leafs-Lightning Part 2 is going to be intriguing. Devils-Rangers, I think there's a lot of explosiveness with some young talent. Both goaltenders are very good. That should be a, a good one. Another one for me is L.A. and Edmonton. I know L.A.'s looking at Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl and Ryan Nugent-Hopkins, all three guys with 100-plus points. Uh, to me, if Stuart Skinner can supply any kind of goaltending for the Oilers, that could be a very dangerous team in the playoffs. A lot of people saying Boston is going to win it all, and that's not a bad pick, seeing that they've rewritten the record book in the regular season. Is that your pick as well to hoist the championship trophy in a month's time? Yeah, I hate to, you know, just go along and go with chalk, but it is the Bruins. I mean, this has been a magical regular season. And to me, you can't bet against them until they prove it otherwise. And we've been waiting for them to fall off all season long. It hasn't happened. Obviously, the postseason is an entirely different beast. But for me, I do have Boston not only coming out of the Eastern Conference. I also have them hoisting the Stanley Cup. Do you have a dark horse? I remember last year when I asked you, you picked the Rangers and they went to the conference final. Who's your dark horse this year? I really like the Stars. I don't think they're getting enough love out of the Western Conference. I have them going all the way to the Western Conference Finals. And spoiler alert, I do have them losing to the Oilers. But to me, this is a Stars team that is different than last year. They no longer are relying on just the top line of Joe Pavelski, Jason Robertson, and Rope Hens. They've got an excellent goaltender and Jake Ottinger. I think they match up extremely well with the Avalanche. And I think there is if there is a team that can give Colorado fits, it is Dallas. The Stars are my dark horse. Even 
even though they were atop the Central Division for most of the season, they are my team that I don't think a lot of people are talking about to make a serious run in these playoffs. We're on the same wavelength. I have Boston over Dallas in the Cup Final, so who knows how it's all going to shake down. Should be an exciting and fun time for hockey fans, young and old. Brian, appreciate the time as always. Of course, Rick, looking forward to it. Enjoy the playoffs. You too. Brian Murphy, NHL content producer with the Sporting News. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.